Well, good morning. I think we will begin. We are a little bit past 10.30, and we have five commandments to try and make it through this morning, so we are going to have to make hot tracks. We'll, we'll allow a minute for things to adjust here. We'll close the doors, and then I'll pray for us. Randy. Thanks, Jim. Any prayer requests this morning? Well, that's good, too. I will open us in prayer, and we will be off. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we can gather. We thank you for the Lord's Day, Sunday on which we can gather and praise your name for what you have done in creation and in redemption. We thank you for what you have done in revealing yourself and giving us your righteous statutes and judgments. We pray that you would help us learn them and by doing that, learn about you well. We pray that you would deepen our faith and our understanding, that you would give us a heart that truly has these words written on it, that we may do them and live. We pray for your spirit to lead us that way, even this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are picking up this morning in Deuteronomy 5, verse 17. We have very little text to read for our basic text this morning. Uh, but we will be making a few other stops along the way. If you got a chance to grab a handout, that may or may not be helpful for you. I will leave that in your judgment. Deuteronomy 5.17 this morning. You shall not murder. Quite simple. Uh, it is the command that... We are not to take life without divine warrant for doing so. There's a whole lot more that could be said about that. We'll only say three more things about it. First, giving life belongs only to God. Therefore, taking life belongs only to God. Every person who takes another person's life is guilty of transgressing this command. But the punishment for transgressing the command is weighted depending on one's intentions. The reason I word it that way is because the word used for murder, and you shall not murder, is the same word used in Deuteronomy 4 in reference to the manslayer. So if we go over to Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 41, we'll read a few verses here. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan that the manslayer might flee there. The word manslayer is the same word as what is translated murder in Deuteronomy 5.17. So what this commandment is forbidding is not only purposeful and intentional life-taking without divine warrant, it's also prohibiting accidental life-taking without divine warrant. Deuteronomy 4 provides a place where the one who transgresses Deuteronomy 5.17 can flee 
And if it was not his intention to take the life of another person, his life is spared there in that city as long as the high priest lives, and then he is released from his um, prison of the city of refuge, and he is free to go back home. But by using that word for murder, as opposed to about four other words the Hebrew could have used for murder, what this commandment is getting at is not only ought we be studious to not intentionally take the life of another, we ought to be studious to not accidentally take the life of another. And outside of that flow a whole number of other commands, which we'll look at here under number two. The Lord demands we guard life lovingly. So if even the manslayer is guilty of transgressing the command, uh, the accidental homicide or manslaughter, the positive aspect of the command is that we should take care to not accidentally take or endanger life as well. So we have commands such as Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. I'll just read it to you. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. That guilt of blood is exactly the issue that forces the manslayer to flee to the city of refuge and why he is held in that city until the death of the high priest. Innocent blood has been shed on the land and therefore there is blood guilt. Someone is morally responsible for that person's death even if it was accidental. And so there is a punishment that follows it but the punishment that follows it is weighted by the intention of the one who took life. And so uh, Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 comes out of this command indirectly, but certainly uh, quite clearly. This command also extends beyond taking physical life all the way to how it affects one's social life or reputation. So there are not only physical lives to be protected, there is also dignity to be protected. Deuteronomy 25 is a command worth looking at here. So if you would turn there to Deuteronomy 25, we will look at verses 1 through 3. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty... Then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his, in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. So that idea of proportionate punishment is significant in Scripture and begins to show its face in this commandment. Verse 3, 40 stripes may be given him, but no more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So there is even concern for the reputation of the person who is receiving punishment for a crime. And what's happening here is not only is physical life supposed to be protected, social life is supposed to be protected as well because one's social standing in the community has a direct impact on how their, so, their physical well-being goes. And so by extension, we reach into other issues uh, related to murder. And if that seems a little fuzzy or far-stretched, consider Jesus' words in Matthew 5, where he connects the commandment of murder 
to the issue of slander and how we speak of one another in the community. So Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24. You have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And I take that last part, I have not read any commentaries over Matthew 5, 21, but I do take that last part, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, is that issue of weighted based on intentions. So whether you accidentally kill someone or purposefully, there is still a liability for judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to to the hell of fire. So what Jesus seems to be getting at here is the way we speak of one another and the way we feel toward one another falls under this issue of murder. How we deal with one another socially has a great deal of impact upon one's well-being and what this commandment is saying positively by prohibiting murder the way it does, what it's saying positively is that we ought to take care of those who are in our community to be studious to make sure that no harm comes to them. The reason for that, number three, and commandment number six here again, leaving Matthew behind, the Lord's nature is to nurture life. Interestingly enough, this commandment extends beyond the way we speak to one another and the way we uh, harbor affections for one another, positively or negatively. So if we were to go over to Deuteronomy 12, which we don't need to, one of the issues in Deuteronomy 12 is that when an animal is killed for meat, for eating, the blood that is shed from that animal needs to be poured on the ground. The reason for that is twofold. First, you may not eat the blood because the life is in it. The blood belongs only to the Lord. The other issue is don't pour it on any other altar. In Deuteronomy's mind, there's only one place for worship. So when you kill an animal recognizing that that animal's life was shed for our good, that blood is to be returned back to the Lord. And so the Lord commands, even if you kill wild game and you're far from the temple, you pour the blood out on the ground, recognizing that I'm the one who gave that life and I have given you authority to take it, but you still are respectful of that life and returning it back to me as you pour the blood on the ground. Deuteronomy 20 is perhaps my favorite place to go uh, to show how this concern extends to the wider creation. Deuteronomy 22.6, I'll read to you as you flip to Deuteronomy 20, verse 19. So you go to Deuteronomy 20.19, I will look at Deuteronomy 22, verse 6, quickly read it. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother's sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The issue there is concern for the life of God's creation, that he gave the life and he alone has the ability and authority to determine who can take it and under what conditions. Now, Deuteronomy 20, verse 19 a rather interesting passage in reference to warfare. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, 
You shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should besiege you? The logic there is the trees do you no harm, and they offer life to other creatures, if not to humanity itself. The point he's making is, I care for life, all life. And how that life is cared for, you therefore care for that life as well. Verse 20 goes on to qualify that just a little bit. Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. So all fruit trees, which are clearly good for promoting and nurturing life, are to be preserved even in warfare. But those trees that are necessary to combat those who are antagonistic to God's people and God's purposes can be used in order to conduct that warfare. Thoughts or questions over the commandment, do not murder. Modern corporal punishment. I think we follow, this is a great question, um, I would point back to Deuteronomy 25 uh, and other commandments. Deuteronomy 25 and Deuteronomy 4, where in both cases we see a punishment in proportion to the crime, but always for intentional homicide, the cap, uh, capital punishment remains the standard in Scripture. Another way to say it, we, we haven't gotten into it this morning, and we would have if we had more time. Divine justice is an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. That is the standard which he gives humanity for us to have as our justice system, I think. Not our personal system, but our justice system. And so, uh, following that command, I think the implications for um, modern corporal punishment, um, it's a a clear standard. How to achieve that standard is a lot more difficult. And that's what we have to kind of hammer out in many instances. So like the the rulers of the world don't bear the sword in vain, but it's still the person of the disciples' responsibility to um, culture a forgiving heart. Yes. Yeah, so one of the ways we entrust judgment to the Lord is being patient with the justice system. And that uh, is in line with Romans 13 there, which you quoted. Uh, but as individuals, we follow the ethic Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, uh, that we are not to personally seek out our own vendetta and, and let the Lord have his, his way in his time. Anything else? Very good. We will move on to commandment number six. Do not commit adultery. Most narrowly and basically, this commandment prohibits one man from sleeping with another man's wife. And the concern in this command, as in all commands is to protect social order. 
This commandment gets at that in two ways. First, it ensures that one's children would be his own children. That is highly significant in a culture in which inheritance passes through the genes. So there is material possession that is attached to one's family lineage and attached to one's birth order. So knowing whose child one is becomes significantly important in that sort of society. The second thing it does is by curbing sexual expressions, social chaos is limited. In this case, the commandment works to prohibit, uh, to prevent aroused passions uh, from disgraced and jealous husbands. So there's a little bit of a tie-in to the previous commandment there with dealing with reputation. Uh, if one man's wife is slept, uh, sleeps with another man, the man who is uh, left by his wife or who is taken, his, whose wife is taken advantage of, he ends up being highly disgraced in the community. You will remember that that was part of the point of Absalom sleeping with David's concubines. It was to make himself a stench in the eyes of David and do it, uh, doing it in sight, in plain sight of all the Israelites, is to show that David is nothing, Absalom is everything. And so the point is to disgrace David as he does it and show that Absalom has taken his point. This is set in place to help prevent uh, passions being aroused because of that. Uh, which, again, creates a good deal of social chaos. So, in itself, the command is very narrow and minimalistic. I say that for a couple of reasons. First, the big ten here that we have, uh, these the, the ten commandments, or the ten words, these commandments are not anything that the Lord does not hold all of his creation accountable to. These are God's expectations for humanity, not simply and only expectations for his redeemed community. So the ten words, in the ten words, God is not calling Israel any higher than what he calls all of his image bearers to. Israel is held to a higher standard through other commandments which are outworkings of these big ten in covenant community. Uh, so even Israel's more stringent laws fall short of God's design for the redeemed. Matthew 19, I think, is uh, insightful on this point. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. Uh, th yeah, 3 to 9. This is Jesus' take on marriage and divorce and clearly by extrapolation adultery uh, comes out or those things come out of this issue of adultery. So Matthew 19 verse 3 the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I want to point out here the commandment is against sleeping with another man's legally wed wife. That's it. 
Israel has a way to get around that command with divorce. If a wife is divorced from her husband, she's fair game for me, right? Um, or if I want to have another woman, I can divorce my wife and go for her. So divorce is what we might call a legal loophole to kind of work away and curb uh, this commandment so that it doesn't really say what, we, what it says. Um, just I can get by it on a technicality of divorce. And so the issue of legality takes a big part of the issue of sleeping with another man's wife, right? When we marry someone else, there are cultural and legal issues that take place, not only theological issues. In fact, to drill that point just a little bit, how many wives does Scripture say Solomon had? Not how many women, how many wives does Scripture say Solomon had? Those are to be taken as legal, legitimate wives in a legal, civil sense. Theologically, we'd say, well, that's pretty skewed, and indeed it is. But the Lord nonetheless acquiesces. He, he assents to the reality that they are legal wives, and that's something we have to deal with as well. So um, issues of modern legal issues uh, were real in Jesus' day, they're real in our day, and that's something we have to deal with. So I, I wanted to put that at the end of verse 3 uh, just to, to muddle the issue a little bit. Verse 4, Matthew 19, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together? Let not man separate. Now here's where they try to catch Jesus. They said to him, Why then did Moses give uh, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Most cultures in the ancient Near East had no problem with divorce. They all had a big problem with adultery. Adultery was considered the great sin of the ancient Near East, of the ancient world, frankly. Whether you're in Egypt or in Mesopotamia or a Hittite, no matter where you are in the ancient world, adultery is considered the great sin uh, against society and against the gods. The Lord, through Moses, gave them the option of sending a woman away with a certificate of divorce. Why? Jesus explains, verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. I bring this up simply to say, by giving the command, do not commit adultery, the Lord is not calling Israel to a higher standard than any other culture held itself simply by reason. Um, but that does not mean the Lord does not call any uh, Israel any higher. One thing worth noting on this point in particular, this is what John Frame would call the universal covenant. The Big Ten, uh, the Ten Commandments, represent what we would call the Lord's universal covenant. It is part of the Sinai covenant. Israel must live at the least the way humanity 
generally is called to live and what the Lord will hold them accountable to. So when we're thinking, how do we understand the, new, the Ten Commandments in the New Covenant? It's part of the Universal Covenant, which encompasses both the Old and the New Testament. That's why when we come into the New Testament, all of these commandments sit simply as they are. The one exception is the way we give expression to the fourth commandment, what is often the fourth commandment, of keeping the Sabbath. That one has new expression because God did something new in redemptive history. We honor that day simply on another day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, as Pastor Dan mentioned this morning in his announcements. So, all of that to say, what stands in the Old Covenant not only remains in the New, it is heightened in its standard in the New Testament. So, all cultures around Israel abhorred adultery. Israel is indeed called to a higher sexual ethic than the surrounding nations. That comes in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 and a few other places as well. Three theological principles to deal with. First, the Lord insists our sexuality is as much a public as it is a private matter. Two reasons I'll give. First is children. Children are a result of sexual unions. That impacts society in a great way, and it's meant to impact society in a great way. So uh, children is always a possibility whenever... Uh, sexual activity takes place. Second, the emotions and the attitudes and the relationships that we have in a bedroom follow us out of the bedroom. We as individuals are impacted when we engage in sexual activity. The Lord designed it that way. And that's why there are warnings all over the Proverbs. There are two chapters of Proverbs devoted to the issue of not being enticed by the strange or the foreign or the adulterous woman. For that very reason, the individual is impacted by that. And as individuals go, so goes society. And so our sexuality and our practices are a public issue as much as they are a private matter. Number two, the Lord insists that he has authority over our sexual sexuality and practices. The fact that God would include an issue related to sexual practices in the Big Ten means that he intends to rule them with authority. And as you look at the landscape of Scripture, outside the issue of idolatry, and often connected to the issue of idolatry, more ink is spilled over perverted sexual practices than any other command. The prophets deal with it. Um, It comes up repeatedly in the narratives of Israel's history. The way we are sexually is a constant and very significant deal throughout the Old Testament. So more ink is given in relation to this issue than pretty much any other issue in Scripture outside idolatry. And it's often used as a metaphor for idolatry, too. The Lord has this authority by nature of creation and so he dictates who we might even say what people are allowed to have sexual relations with in Leviticus 18 and 20 and by nature of redemption the Lord has authority over issues related to our sexual practices 
That is why Israel's laws go beyond the surrounding culture's laws. For example, very few nations had laws related to homosexuality. Some of them did. None of them had laws against bestiality. Likely part of the reason for that was religious. When you have a religious system where the gods are a conglomerate of animal and human creatures, you can expect sexual practices are going to follow that theology. And so the surrounding cultures had very loose laws in comparison to some of Israel's more stringent laws. Uh, God does call his people to a higher form of ethic, especially sexually, and that is because it reflects God's own character. Number three, the Lord invests sexuality with displays of his own character. Lots of things could be said here. I'll just give a few very brief ones. First, the idea of men and women becoming one flesh as a result of sexual union. The Lord is a unity in diversity. He is one in three. Scripture often refers to God as one in two, which uh, the Father and the Son receive predominant attention and the Spirit is often spoken of as the fellowship, the bond between them. If you read old theologians, that's how the Spirit is often spoken of. Um, men and women are a unity in diversity. Two in one. We are to reflect God's unity as a married unit, even though we maintain distinctions among ourselves as married couples. Number two... We are made to think like God thinks. God is a jealous God. We tend to be jealous people. Uh, that is a good thing in many ways. It's good when it is used in a good way. There is a good biblical form of jealousy, and there is a bad, evil form of envy. God is a jealous God. He created us to be jealous of what belongs to us, and what belongs to us more than anything else is our spouse. The third thing, these laws are meant to protect the vulnerable by containing the lusts, of the powerful, the lustful, and the foolish. Each of these commands is that. It's a command, right? It's meant to prevent and prohibit, restrain, limit uh, what one is able to do with their sexual expressions. Notice that the commandment does not say, no one has a right to sleep with your wife. The commandment does not say, you are entitled to a Sabbath rest. What the commandment says is, you rest. You do not sleep with someone else's wife. It is a prohibition on the powerful, not a bill of rights for the vulnerable. And that is significant in Scripture. Uh, scripture always goes in that direction, or almost always goes, without exception. Aiming at those who have power in order to protect those who do not, rather than telling the weak, these are your rights, and the powerful may not infringe on them always aims at those who have ability. So, that's all I have over that command. Many, 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 many more things could have been said about it, uh, but that's where it, uh, we'll stop for today unless you have any questions or thoughts over it. Well, good, because we're only two-thirds done, and two-thirds out of time. We're a little bit beyond that, but... Deuteronomy 5, verse 
19. You shall not steal. Three principles I will look at here briefly. First, the Lord is the giver. We are receivers. This prohibits taking what does not belong to us legally. The reason that is important is because all resources are limited. And all life depends upon resources. This does not prevent us from seeking things that are not ours through legal and ordered means. If there is something, in fact, if there is anything that I want, and there is a legal and a moral way to achieve attaining it, I'm free to do so. The Lord grants us that freedom. This restricts us from doing it in unjust, unfair, unrighteous, and illegal ways. So we may have a law in place that is not righteous, we still ought to obey that law if it prevents us, uh, if it is a preventative law, which is, you shall not do this. Even if we are morally able to do it outside of that law, we are still restrained by it. So all I'm pointing out here is that we are, we are allowed to seek things that are not ours. We have to be careful about the means we go about to attain them. So, on the one hand, while Israel is free to kill the Canaanites and take everything that belongs to them, transgressing on its face, commandments six and uh, commandments five and seven, murder and theft. I'm sorry, that's six and eight. Anyway, well, Israel's—it uh, seems like she's transgressing those commands in both cases. Israel not only has divine warrant for doing so, she's commanded to do so. So you kill the Canaanites, wipe them out entirely. And you take everything that belongs to them. That's divine warrant. Now, that is a morally right way for Israel to attain the land of Canaan. A righteous God gave the command. It is a righteous thing to do. On the other hand, Israel is not allowed, no Israelite is allowed to creep the borders of their territory onto their neighbor's land. So on the one hand, they can annihilate a group of people and take everything that belongs to them. On the other hand, this is the boundary marker for your family line. Don't move it. It is set in place because the Lord gives and we receive. This is also intended to prevent exploitation. Deuteronomy 24, verse 6 and verse 17. If you don't want to turn there, I will read it to you. Deuteronomy 24, verse 6. No one shall take a millstone or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. The reason taking a millstone in pledge is taking a life in pledge is because the millstone is necessary for processing one's food. And so if you take it, that person loses their means for food processing. How are they supposed to live? And so, well, here it would seem as though they might have a right to take that millstone because the other person is in desperate need of whatever the other person has that they're borrowing. Uh, there are limits put on the powerful and what they might take and pledge the same thing in Deuteronomy 24, verse 17. 
You shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. So again, be careful in how you deal with this issue of taking what could legally be considered yours but is a transgression of God's moral design. Not only that, Israel is also prohibited from charging interest against fellow Israelites when they give a loan. Again, the reason for that is because the Lord is the giver and he gives to his people we receive. So we ought to become generous, which we'll come to on point three. But number two, number one was the Lord is the giver, we are receivers. Number two, the Lord insists we care for what he gives to others. We are to care for others by caring for what the Lord gave them. So, for example, if an Israelite's ox wanders away from home, the fellow Israelite isn't supposed to say, hey, a free ox is wandering, finders, keepers. He is supposed to return the ox back to the owner so the owner has a means for his livelihood. Similarly, if a donkey falls in a pit, the Israelite is to retrieve the donkey and care for it until his owner comes to find it. Again, the issue is not simply don't take what's not yours. The issue is also care for what belongs to one another so that things may go well for you. And again, certain things may not be taken in pledge. So the Lord insists that we care for one another by caring for what he gives other people. Number three, the Lord demands we trust him for all provision. And if we trust him for all provision, we will not only not be thieves, we will become generous and trustworthy ourselves. That's what the Lord, I think, is aiming at here. So let's flip to Leviticus 19, and we will spend a little bit of time looking at this text. Leviticus 19 Starting in verse 9, here Israel has a law that limits the thoroughness with which an Israelite can harvest his own field. When I was uh, growing up, I lived in Marion. Freeman had a Case International dealership. And one of my favorite pictures in that dealership was, it was a two-frame picture. One frame had a John Deere combine, the other one had a Case International combine. The John Deere combine had all sorts of uh, uh, grain left after the combine, and the pheasants were full and fat and plump. Behind the International combine, there was not a kernel left, and the pheasants were thin and gaunt, right? They looked like the, the seven bad cows from Pharaoh's dream. Um... And the, the contrast was the international gets it all. John Deere's going to leave it behind. Go with international. But what the text here in Leviticus 19 is saying is not only do you take the bad combine, you leave pieces of your field behind, which is a complete opposite way of what we think. And there are good reasons for that, uh, why we don't follow the letter of Leviticus 19. But anyway, Leviticus 19, verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. 
And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Not only is Israel supposed to trust the Lord by not doing so, by, by limiting the harvest of their own fields for others, they become generous and trustworthy, trusting the Lord. Related, they are to have just scales. Verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You could also look at verses 35 and 36. For time, we won't. But keep a finger in Leviticus 19. One of the ironies of trusting the Lord, I'll bring it out here, the more we trust the Lord, the more we trust the Lord. What I mean by that is the more we trust him, the more we see how he does provide for us, the easier it is to trust him next time. On the other hand, the less we trust the Lord, the more we are to the more we tend to hoard things for our own and the more we feel resources are a scarcity. The more we trust, the more we trust. And that's what the Lord is directing us to in the commandment do not steal. Thoughts or questions over Deuteronomy 5:19. I'm not going to leave you much time because we got to make tracks. Verse 20, Deuteronomy 5:20. Keep a finger in Leviticus 19. We're coming right back to it. Leviticus, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 5:20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It is a good translation, but an unfortunate one at the same time. The word for false in the ESV, you shall not bear false witness, is the same word that is translated vanity or emptiness in chapter 5 verse 11 you shall not take the name of the Lord your God for an empty thing and in verse 20 you shall not bear an empty witness against your neighbor here the commandment forbids antagonistically saying something about one's neighbor that is not true especially as it relates to issues in court Three things we'll say about it. First, the Lord desires we conform our speech to reality. This is not a command that primarily aims at the issue of lying, but against doing one's neighbor wrong. Go back to Leviticus 19, verse 11, and we'll see how that plays out in that verse. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Why is lying in the same verse, in the same context, as stealing? The issue is not doing your neighbor wrong. That's what the lying is getting at in that passage. It's not saying, never shall you ever have any word come from your mouth that is not 100% true. That's not what the command is primarily aiming at might reach close to that but it's not what it's saying what it's dealing with is not doing your neighbor wrong hence the command reads you shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor anything that will lead them into a bad spot leviticus 19 12 is very similar you shall not swear by my name falsely 
which is to mislead your neighbor, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord your God. So here again, do not deal deceptively with your neighbor, and that's exactly how Jesus uses it as well, right? Um, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard it said, um, he doesn't say it exactly that way, but in the Old Testament, uh, swear by the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, James, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. The intent of Leviticus 19.12 is to refrain from, refrain from deceiving another by appealing to God's character. Again, very closely, rework, uh, very closely related to the commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Both places. Number two, the Lord insists we care for others' well-being. And here we get not to the issue of what supports them physically and substantively, we get to the issue of justice and dignity. Leviticus 19 will jump down. Uh, Let's do this. Leviticus 19, 13 and 14. This deals with the issue of uh, protecting a neighbor's dignity. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. What that is saying is do not cheat or rob the dignity of your neighbor who needs what you are to give him. Again, closely related to the previous commandment to not steal, but a little bit different. Verses 15 and 16. Here it comes to the issue of justice, especially in court. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Therefore, again, in Deuteronomy 24, the loner has no right to enter the the borrower's house and take his pledge. He must wait for it. There he has a right to take the pledge. It's a righteous thing to do. The issue is guarding the dignity of the neighbor by not taking by force what he owes you. So again, limiting the powerful there. Number three, the Lord establishes society upon honoring one another. One of the goals, again, besides reflecting the Lord's integrity and honesty, is that this is necessary for a peaceful, orderly, and functional society. I'll just ask the question, where then does espionage fit? Espionage fits, I think, this way. It does use deception, but it uses to undercut the things that make for a chaotic, disorderly, and unrighteous society. So, when Absalom usurps David's throne, David has ran out of Jerusalem... David asks Hushai, would you go back and give advice to Absalom under the pretense that you mean to do him good? What was it that Absalom did? Introduced all sorts of chaos and anarchy in Jerusalem. Took away the throne of the Lord's anointed, worked against the Lord's purposes. And so Hushai, in the text, at least as I read it, appears to be commended as doing the Lord and his anointed a great service through his acts of espionage, which is why I say this commandment doesn't prohibit what Hushai did. It prohibits 
doing the things uh, that are deceptive that result in the harm of society by harming individuals in it and not those individuals necessarily who are already harming society. That's another issue. Thoughts or questions over this commandment? I will end that last point uh, by Romans 12.10. I would have drawn this out had I a little bit more time, but I don't. Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. There is no coincidence that at the end of those passages in Leviticus that we were reading about justice and dignity and treating one another honestly and working for one another's good, we read Leviticus 9 to Leviticus 16. Here's Leviticus 17 and 18. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I think that's a fitting place to end the commandments that deal with our relationships with one another, roughly commandments four or five, depending on how you count them, uh, through commandment eight or nine, depending on how you count them. There's nothing to be said about that. I'll hit the last commandment in Deuteronomy 5, verse 21. Sorry if there's been a lot of skipping around today. Deuteronomy 5, verse 21. Depending on how these commandments are counted, this may be two commandments. I'm going to pretend for the moment that they are two separate commandments, though I'll categorize them under one. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That'd be commandment number one, distinct from do not commit adultery. And number two, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servants, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Possibly because this commandment can be read as two, Paul latched on to it as the commandment which the unregenerate man cannot not break. The unregenerate man will break the commandment, do not covet. And unlike all the other commandments before it, this one pinpoints and pricks the heart. This is the commandment that alone deals with the internal motivation that lies behind breaking all of the previous commandments. So James in James 4 will say, um, as you all know, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What produces all of the problems you have in your little organization? Is it not that you desire... That's what he points to. And what this command is aiming at is don't desire those things that the Lord has not given you, especially if it belongs to your neighbor. So I only have one point under this one. The Lord is our satisfaction. And if he is our satisfaction, all the others will fall into place. So this commandment not only is a capstone, it is also a key to what all of the others are. So the first thing we are not to do is crave that which is the apple in the eye of our neighbor. 
don't look at his wife that way. The Lord has not given her to you. She belongs to another. Find satisfaction in the Lord and what he has given you, and do not go after what he has given another one and what your neighbor holds in his highest affections. Don't even want it. The second command, or aspect of that command anyway, is I do not go after those lesser things that your neighbor has that might be desirable. And here what we find is in the Ten Commandments, this is Moses' articulation of the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20, but Moses gives a strongly humanitarian bent to them. And here it comes out very strongly. In Exodus 20, those commandments are flipped. First, it's don't covet his house. Then it's don't covet his wife. Here, it's don't covet his wife and don't covet his house. The emphasis there being take care for what's your neighbor's as well. The emphasis there is what belongs to another and is dearly loved to another. Don't even want it. Find satisfaction in the Lord and all will go well. We'll uh, skip in closing here to three verses I will allude to in Matthew. No doubt that ending on the issues of one's desires, Jesus says that failure to follow the Lord with a whole heart will inevitably lead us astray into all manner of evil. Uh, Matthew six twenty one. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is your neighbor's wife, that's where your heart is going to be, not with the Lord. If the Lord is your treasure, your heart will be there, and you will not desire your neighbor's wife. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom, and he will give all of these things to you. Which isn't a promise for everything in the world, but it is a promise for everything that makes for a satisfying life. When the Lord blesses. Matthew 15.18, All things come from the heart. Out of the heart come all manner of evil, and Jesus lists off a bunch of them. One of them is evil desires. That brings us back full circle to the first commandment. If the Lord is our satisfaction, we won't worship other gods before him. And we cycle back through the Ten Commands once again. Thoughts or questions in closing over what we've discussed today and this summer. Very good. It has been a joy to be with you. The way things look, I will be continuing on in Deuteronomy, uh, next verse, for the fall quarter, beginning not next weekend, but the weekend after that. Can you explain the weirdness of waiting until next year? Well, I'm waiting two weeks to continue with it. I'm waiting two weeks to continue with it. We, we have no Sunday school next Sunday. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your patience. God willing, we will see you next week. Uh, Two weeks. I'll be here next week. Hopefully see you next week. Uh, But we need to pick up chairs as well this morning. Thank you.